Hello and welcome to our show. You are listening to What's the Tea with Reconciliation Ministry. Twice a month, we sit down with guests to have conversations about the intersection of faith and social justice. I am April Johnson, Executive Director of Reconciliation Ministry, and I am your host. Well, welcome to What's the Tea with Reconciliation Ministry. We are excited that you are joining us for our podcast, our once uh, twice monthly podcast. And this week, our guest is um, Dr. Carolyn Helson, who is um, Assistant Professor of Homiletics at Austin Seminary. She is uh, an author and uh, she is uh, one who is willing to uh, walk with those who are anxious to be in this work and this conversation that we have called reconciliation and sometimes have made people uncomfortable by calling it the work of anti-racism. So welcome, Carolyn, to What's the Tea? We are so grateful to welcome you here and also so grateful for your willingness to work with the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. We know that you are published through uh, our publishing house, Chalice Press, but we also know that you have made yourself available to our disciples pastors and our disciples uh, regional pastors to help our anti-racism efforts and folks to um, walk alongside each other in this work of anti-racism. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great. So I have come to know you. Um, I was um, privileged to have a draft of your book, Anxious to Talk About It, which again was published by Chalice Press and was, I'm also blessed to be uh, one of the endorsers in the book. I didn't realize that my endorsement actually made it, but I want to share with our audience and with you that one of the reasons that I was very enthusiastic about your book and the content is because it said everything that people had been having a hard time saying to me that I knew was happening in our anti-racism trainings that we uh, facilitate through my office of reconciliation ministry, but were really unable to say. And so I wanted to make sure that the church, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ had an endorsement from me that said, get your hands on this book now, because Carolyn Helso makes it very accessible to struggle with this difficult conversation that we have tried to invite you into over the last 25 years as the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. So tell us, uh, Carolyn, if you don't mind, what was the impetus or what were the uh, moments or uh, experiences that you had that led you to uh, place these thoughts into a, a book entitled Anxious to Talk About It. Tell us more. Well, thank you. Um, it started as a question that I had in seminary. Um, I was, um, I went to seminary as someone who felt called to ministry when I was about 15. So I was raised in a Christian household. I uh, grew up Presbyterian, and 
uh, went to school where I majored in religion at a small liberal arts college. And so growing up, I never uh, had any doubt that racism was bad, that racism was wrong. And yet I also felt like it wasn't a major problem. It didn't seem to be something we were struggling with currently uh, because of the communities, the predominantly white communities that I had been part of. I didn't hear people uh, expressing overtly racist ideas. Um, And so in the back of my mind, it felt like it was something we had dealt with as a society during the civil rights movement and that the ongoing problems were really kind of those pockets of supremacists that are, uh, you know, really clearly naming white nationalism and, you know, KKK identification. But when I was in seminary and I started reading the works of womanist theologians like Dolores Williams Mm -hmm. and reading about her experience and then hearing from some of my colleagues uh, who are also students in seminary to say, yeah, no, this is a regular experience. This is a daily experience. And uh, for me to just feel that I was part of this problem because I was ignorant about it, but also I would unknowingly participate in some of these racist systems. So for instance, I was interested in taking a course on feminist theologies. And uh, there were uh, a number of titles on the syllabus that I got in advance of different kinds of feminist and womanist theologies from around the world. There were African women's uh, theologies, Asian women's theologies, African-American womanist theologies, Asian-American theologies, uh, Native American theologies, all of these different perspectives. And when I initially saw the syllabus, my initial reaction was to say to the man who would later become my husband, he was my uh, just friend at the time, you know, I don't think I'm interested in this class. I don't think I can relate to this many perspectives. You know, I'm really just looking for feminist theology. Mm-hmm. And he said to me with this kind of gentle way, you know, I think that's where feminist theology is heading these days to realize that women from all over the world can help us better see the experience of women and how God speak to, speaks to us through their experiences. And it was this gentle way of telling me that I was being racist. I was being part of a culture that really preferred to hear things only from white people. And I wouldn't have identified myself in that way. Um, But for me to realize I'm not just a generic woman, I am particularly a white woman and an an inheritor of this long system of ignoring the gifts of others. And that was a really powerful turning moment for me to see my own kind of implication being Mm -hmm. uh, complicit in this. Mm-hmm. So after seminary, I was in ministry at the U.S.-Mexico border as a hospital chaplain in Yuma, Arizona. Uh, I later was in ministry in uh, San Antonio as an associate pastor, and then later served on the admissions uh, team at Princeton Seminary as their associate director of admissions. And the issues of diversity and race uh, came up again and again in these different settings, and it felt like there weren't clear ways for us to have these conversations. I would go to uh, some of the anti-racist 
uh, programs that our own denomination would host or multicultural conferences and training events. Uh, and while I benefited a great deal from those, uh, those training events, I often felt that at the end of them, I was so kind of shell-shocked. I was so um, kind of deep in grief and uh, I, I didn't have a place to go. I didn't have a, a, like a footing to feel like I knew what to do from there. And I noticed that my own tendency was to react with either kind of shame or guilt when having these conversations. And that often led me to just want to shut down at the end, like, okay, phew, I've done that. We're, we're done with that training. Now I'm ready to get on with the rest of my life and not have to think about this for a while. Right. And knowing just how deeply ingrained the problem of racism is throughout our society, it can't be something that we just see to in little pockets, in little daytime uh, events, and then we move on to the rest of our life. It's like our Christian faith. It's not something we just do on Sunday, but it's a whole right. lifestyle. And really living into a way of being in the world uh, that works against racism, it has to be part of our, our lifestyle. It has to be part of who we are. Mm -hmm. So I started doing some additional uh, research. I, I, I started uh, taking a part-time THM degree uh, at Princeton Seminary and doing some research of what other people um, have been doing to try to help uh, particularly white people since I was feeling like I needed this for me and for other people that are like me who have this kind of uh, difficult uh, time engaging with this. And I came across the work of Beverly Daniel Tatum mm -hmm. uh, and Janet Helms. Mm -hmm. And Beverly Daniel Tatum, uh, her work on racial identity development mm -hmm. helped me kind of see this progression to know that these, all, these emotional experiences, the tendency to want to withdraw or shut down, all of this is an expected part of growing and learning and that it's not the end goal. It's not the end result and that there's something beyond that. And that gave me a lot of, a lot of hope. And I thought, we need to be able to share the, the good news of racial identity development with, mm -hmm. with pastors all over the place to be able to help them understand the strong reactions uh, that, that we're going to get in ourselves as well as in our congregations when we try to have these conversations. And so anxious to talk about it really came about as a, a desire to be able to speak more directly to a broader audience to say, okay, we have a lot of work to do and we all need to be part of this, not just the educated, not just pastors, uh, but every single one of us. So I, I tried to write it in a way that was uh, accessible, uh, but also bringing in uh, to bear the different theories that had, had benefited uh, my thinking about it. Um, and just to also be really present to my own feelings, again, to try to be kind of vulnerable and present to the readers uh, so that they also could experience a sense of, of being able to be vulnerable themselves, uh, to be able to open themselves up to those feelings. Because so much of, I think, the, the barrier to continuing these conversations is that we get stuck in our heads yeah. that we, we get stuck worried that we don't have the right knowledge that we don't have the right things to say but our hearts are really where we need to to be able to sit with and to be able to open ourselves to the difficult emotions to the difficult stories that we hear from others 
and to be able to sit with that uh, in a sense of sacred awe and wonder um, and, and a sense of gratitude that God is letting us into this other world that we may not have been part of before. Yeah. One thing you say right at the start of the book in your introduction is that who you are not. And you talk about that you um, are aware of the uh, anti-racism um, training model that we have adopted as the Christian Disciples of Christ and the Presbyterians did at one point, the Lutherans did. Uh, many mainline denominations adopted an anti-racism training model that often left people feeling um, the, the, uh, some sense of guilt and shame. But also I found uh, in my, I'd say, almost 20 years, but definitely 15 solid years in doing this work, that it also is an academic exploration and it leaves people with a feeling of, so what? You know, I, you told me all this social historical analysis of racism, so what do I do with this now? And I thought, it, I mean, I thought it was really um, helpful in your introduction where you say, I have a colleague who does anti-racism training and that is who I am not. Mm. And so I'm wondering how this work differs a bit from the model of anti-racism training in terms of making this conversation more accessible. Can mm. you share some your thoughts about that? Sure, and I am really um, just impressed by people who are full-time anti-racist trainers because they're the ones who are getting all of the emotion that's in that room, often directed at them, all of that emotion, it doesn't just, just stay with the people that are there, but they get, you know, people get mad, people express their own, you know, feelings. And um, it can be really, really hard to be doing that all the time. Um, and so by saying that I'm not that, it's, it's a way of saying, I get to take the easier route in some ways, to be honest. I mean, this is, writing a book where uh, people are able to say whatever they want, you know, while they're reading the book far away from me, I don't, I don't get to hear, but the people who are on the front lines who are doing this work of anti-racism training, they deserve really the credit for this long slog of work that has to happen and that it's necessary. Um, and that what I hope that this book can be is a way of of kind of bridging the gaps, you know? So once people have had an anti-racism racism training or they haven't had one yet, but they're trying to get their congregation to get an anti-racism training event at their church, uh, how can we prepare the hearts and minds for people uh, also so that the trainers that are there don't get that kind of emotional kickback uh, from the, the people that are there so that people can feel prepared with open hearts uh, and awareness of their own emotional processes uh, so that they can be fully present in that process. I want to fast forward to this book, Anxious to Talk About It, Helping White Christians Talk Faithfully About Racism. Then I would assume was the impetus or the launching pad for your next book, which is now um, also published by Chalice Press entitled Preaching About Racism, A Guide for Faith Leaders. So share with us how you went from 
anxious to talk about it, to preaching about racism and how that may also be a resourceful tool for our, our clergy in, the, in our churches. Well, once I've kind of helped people on the lay leader front uh, think about their feelings and really try to get out of the brain and into their heart, um, I also, like we said, you know, want to get back in the brain and <laughs> give people mm -hmm. some ways of, of thinking about things, um, particularly um, for pastors uh, and, and faith leaders who want to continue to help their congregations through this. Um, so, for instance, in, in one chapter in preaching about racism, I have uh, a, a bunch of myths about racism that can kind of um, prevent us from continuing on with this conversation. You know, there are, there are ways that certain myths that we, we consider about racism that makes us think that it's already dealt with. Mm -hmm. um, racism is not our problem. Racism is only about hateful actions and words. Uh, racism has to do with our intentions. You know, some of these myths uh, that we need to kind of let people know ahead of time that, uh, that this is what we'll encounter when we hear people talking about it. And this mm -hmm. is how we can help people think through beyond those, some of those myths of what, we, what we're really talking about when we, when we use the word racism. Uh, you know, another, another thing that I want to help uh, pastors with is to think about this uh, in terms of, of scripture. And if scripture uh, doesn't have the word racism in it, mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean when pastors or, or people who are preparing talks come to um, the Bible and that's not necessarily what they immediately see? They may not immediately uh, hear this, the text speaking to them about racism. Well, what are ways that we can understand how scripture has been interpreted historically uh, both uh, in favor of oppressive racism uh, um, institutions like slavery, as well as uh, the, the rise of black church traditions uh, that have drawn heavily from scripture as their strength. Um, mm. So seeing the history of interpretation of scripture and using some interpretive uh, tools to understand how we can preach effectively from scripture about this subject. Um, but I think white people, as well as people of color, can often be in bondage to racism in the sense that our bodies act out of these habits, these deeply ingrained habits that our society has passed on to us. So all of the stories of white people calling the cops on black people that they find suspicious. That's a, a sin of habituated bondage, that fear response that's not at all rational uh, and that's not just, but it's part of, of the sin of that racism has in, inflicted on our society. I think that's a real gift of uh, both books is that you're very illustrative and helping people see what this looks like, as you said. And I think that is the hardest uh, part of this work. We have embedded this work in our ministry uh, entitled reconciliation, which is a very long multi-syllabic word, right? Um, but also a very nebulous word. And um, helping people find where does anti-racism fit into reconciliation what does reconciliation mean? But more importantly, what does it look like? 
And so I'd like to close, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you one final question in our closing. Um, in terms of your gift of illustration, there is a story I share with you that stood out in anxious that I'm sure carries over into um, preaching about racism that you shared, that you had facilitated conversation with students and then uh, used the same exercise with colleagues and had two different reactions. And I wonder if you could share that story so that folks that are considering using this resource understand that there is no, as you would say, clear path to the right way to have this conversation, yet we're learning all the time and all along the path, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. So do you recall that story you shared? I do, I do. So I was teaching a course of uh, doctor of ministry students on, on preaching and storytelling, and I invited them to share a story uh, on the first time that they broke the law. And so in Anxious, I, I share some of those stories and they're funny and the people that were sharing them you know, had some really kind of uh, silly uh, e examples. One person had accidentally swallowed tobacco to avoid getting caught as an underage tobacco um, chewer. Uh, and it was all kind of this lighthearted moment where we're getting to know one another and laughing with uh, one another. Uh, and so the following week when I was uh, with a group of colleagues at a retreat where we had spent time together and we were sitting around a fire on the beach and it was quiet and I thought, you know, I wonder if this would be a good time to share some stories with one another. Let me throw out the same question and see how my colleagues respond. Uh, and so I asked the question again. I said, yeah, this is a good time for storytelling. Anyone who want to share a story about the first time they broke the law? Expecting the same kind of potential response. But uh, the woman next to me uh, shared in a very somber tone, I can't tell you a story about the first time I broke the law, but I can tell you a story about the first time I was accused of breaking the law. And as a young girl going in with a, uh, a friend of hers into a, a shopping center, she was, she's African-American, her friend was white, and it was she who was stopped by the security guard uh, and told to turn out her bag and to reveal what was inside. And uh, he accused her of shoplifting, even though she was just there waiting with her friend. And the kind of difference in tone of those two settings uh, was so stark in my mind, but it reminded me again of how different our experiences are when we go through life racialized in one way versus being racialized in another way. All of the D-Men students were white, and so all of their experiences of having broken the law was never in the context of a deep fear for their own lives and their own safety or fear of being unjustly accused of something they had never done. Um, and that continues to, to stay with me uh, as, as something that I, I, I think about. I've got, I've got children, uh, as I mentioned. I have a 12-year-old son and an eight-year-old daughter. Uh, and, a, and a while ago, um, uh, I, I probably shouldn't be confessing this on, on the podcast, but uh, <laughs> uh, when, I was, <laughs> when I was in high school, I, 
I had stolen a tortilla warmer from a restaurant and I, I don't know why, what, what, you know, got in my head to steal a tortilla warmer, but I, I did, I, I, I stole it from the restaurant. And then years later, you know, we actually still have this tortilla warmer traveling around with us in our, our kitchen supplies. And it's a beloved prize. <laughs> it's a delicious, beloved prize. And my, my 12 year old son was, was joking about it at one point, you know, we were at another restaurant and he points at a tortilla warmer. He's like, mom, you think I should get that? And, you know, I'm joking with him. I'm like, no, you should, totally shouldn't. But later we were, we were at home and we were talking about that. And I said, Caleb, you know, you and I were joking about that. But if you were a son of mine who was black, I would know where, I would never want you to even pretend to steal something because of the number of times that young black men are accused unjustly of things that they haven't done and what risks would come to you. Uh, and, you know, have you ever been unjustly accused? Has anyone ever thought of, of that, you know, call, called you on, on shoplifting or asking if you shoplifted? And he was like, wow, no. And it was this eye-opening experience for him too, to realize how as a 12 year old boy, uh, you know, he, he has a very racialized experience uh, that's very different from, from other kids. I mean, Tamir Rice, I think, was 12. Uh, and, and so it's, yeah, it, it's, it's eye-opening when we share these different kinds of stories and we hear that still today our experiences can be very different. Thank you so much for your time with us today on What's the Tea with Reconciliation. And again, thank you so much for your willingness to serve in this capacity on behalf of Christ's body. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, that's our show for today. Stay connected with us on social media. We're at DLC Reconcile on Twitter, Reconciliation Ministry on Facebook, and on our website at reconciliationministry.org. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening.